The Impact Education Leadership, this is episode 163. I'm your host, ID34, Isaiah Drone III, tonight's plans are Sean Young and Buddy Thornton, Puzzle Change Agent Pro. Buddy Thornton, Puzzle Change Agent Pro, please say hello to the people. Good evening, everybody, and I am thrilled to be here tonight. I think this is an uh, extremely important topic, and we're uh, we're going to knock it out of the park. Absolutely. And Sean Young, please say hello to the people. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Sean. Uh, really glad to be here and uh, looking forward to this conversation. Wonderful. Well, tonight's topic is asking the right questions at the right time. Why did I come up with that topic? Well, it's so, so many things to look at. Looking at back to school, looking at redesigning, looking at mental health, looking at managing behaviors. We're even looking at with all of those facets going on we still have to accommodate to the act that we have been tasked to perform as educators and that is every student succeeds act well let me go around the panel real quick when i first gave you this topic for the night what was the first thought that came to your mind uh buddy three what was the first thought that came to your mind sir I believe that COVID and the last two and a half years has opened the eyes of a lot of parents. And I think that asking the right questions at the right time, especially in a very contentious and divisive and stressful environment, could not be a more appropriate target. And I think that uh, we will add a lot of value to the conversation. And I, I, I realize that when I'm parent coaching, this is the this is the question that comes up all the time: is you know, is the timing right? And if the timing is right, then what is the correct question? Oh, this is gonna be good tonight. Oh, this is gonna be good tonight. You need to share this right now with a friend, with a colleague, Sean Young. What was the first thought that came to your mind? You know, you got the topic. Come on, talk about it. I, I, I love the topic. Couldn't help but think of, you know, what, what is the question I would ask? <laughs> and, you know, and I think for me, um, what, what is the role of school today? Um, I think that there's so much uh, time back when we start thinking about um, how do we design schools? How do we design the school experience? What is school role in society today? I think, you know, to, to Buddy's point about um, the pandemic, uh, I think that's opened up a lot of questions, and there's you know huge opportunities societally for us to to be thinking about that. Throughout the history of teaching, throughout the history of teaching pedagogy, we have always been required to check for understanding with our students because we want to know, presto, did you get the wow factor? In addition to classroom checks, districts and statewide testing can be used to monitor progress with those informal strategies, those informal assessments, such as talking to the class, direct teaching, getting feedback, and even exit tickets, journal checks, and a host of other strategies to measure the SWOT analysis, the strengths, the weaknesses, the opportunities, the trends, the threats, 
and we've used these benchmark tests to monitor progress, not only with our students learning and understanding, but also with our pedagogy. It has never been more crucial than now that we give as many intervention strategies and, as, and, and we connect with as many support systems in our communities to help us move forward, to help us progress toward those goals. And yes, even parental involvement is much more crucial now than ever. Why? Because it helps our classrooms, it helps our young scholars stay well. Tonight, we're going to go deep into a conversation and we're going to go on a ride. And through this ride, there are going to be ebbs and there are going to be flows. There is going to be ugly, pretty, beautiful, you name it, bloody. But we're going to get through it. Let me go first to Buddy Thornton, Positive Social Change Agent Pro. We talk about asking the right questions at the right times. Now, do we ask the right questions at the right times with having ethnicities in, our, in the backdrop? And what I mean by ethnicities, do we include diversity? Do we include inclusion with those special needs students, with those 504, with those ESLs, with those ELLs? Are we really are we really pursuing this? Where are we at right now as a nation as it relates to that question I just asked? I think the biggest thing that people need to look at is that at no other time in our history, and that includes the civil rights era of the 1960s, has parents and community had to come face to face with what school means in society. Schools are a bastion of hope for the students. They should be a bastion of hope for the parents. They should be the anchor point for all of anybody who is seeking a, a very positive adulthood. They should understand that their feet have to be firmly planted on the foundation that a school has created. And yet the pandemic exposed two things. It exposed the lack of connectivity between a lot of the parents and their schools because the parents weren't aware of exactly what was and was not happening in the schools until they were forced to actually take on the role of a quasi-teacher. Now, parents should be the primary teacher of every child because they are and have always been in the environment of their children. And the only time they shouldn't be fully involved is when they have to hand off that responsibility to the parentas in loco, which is the teachers at the school setting. And even then... Any parent who doesn't understand what the teachers and the students are doing in that class environment is a problem. And the pandemic exposed that that is exactly what the nation has faced for decades. 
but with no awareness. Nobody was, everyone says, yeah, t- parents need to be involved, but was it just giving it lip service? Was it just smoke and mirrors? That's, that's exactly what the environment today exposed and especially exposed for the minority students and the students from the lower economic uh, strata because those parents have reasons, not excuses, reasons why they may have at least a smaller level of uh, accountability because they are stressed at a higher level. They have to support their family. They may not have as much time on their hands, but there's a lot of things going on that says, why aren't the teachers in the schools aware and why aren't they willing to be in a communal type environment and pick up the slack? There should be an omnidirectional communication going on between the parents, the home, the caregivers, and the teachers because a child's life is at stake. So we have to understand that nowhere in history has we has anything ever hit us quite like COVID. Yes, there's been disasters. There's been problems. There's been small environmental problems in different locations. But this is not nationwide. This is global. And... It's extended, and it's not going to stop. It's switched from pandemic to endemic, so now we have to live with COVID forever. So how do we re-envision the world now that we have unlocked the closet? We have rung the bell. You can't unring it. We know there were disconnects and there were problems before the pandemic. They've been brought to the light of day. Now, It's time for the professionals, the quasi-professionals, the external professionals like people like myself. We need to answer the clarion call and get this fixed. Don't have all the answers, but I think I have a few. But I think that's where we're at. And it starts at the bottom, not at the top. Good as always. So we we need to focus on the how and we need to focus on the why. How are we going to come back to school? Why should we redesign? How are we going to manage mental health? Why should we manage mental health? How are we going to accommodate those scholars that need it? Sean Young, thank you for coming to the podcast. <laughs> I'm so yep. excited for having you here. Tell the listeners a little bit about who I know who you are, but let the listeners know a little bit about who you are, what you're doing, what you got going on currently. Absolutely. Thanks. Uh, I'm glad to be here. So I'm uh, the CEO, co-founder of a company called Classcraft. We do uh, behavior intervention um, at scale and um, from a positive behavior approach. So, um, you know, setting out very clear, you know, expectations for students, you know, here's how uh, you should behave with the goal of developing skills for students Um through, you know, for example, uh, yeah, I want you to develop, uh, you know, for example, we we're talk- just talking now about mental health, you know, how do we, how can we help students? Um, you know, we can't solve their mental health problems as teachers, uh, but what we can do is teach them skills so that they can better manage their own mental health. And so what does that look like? That looks like learning how to deal with anxiety, learning how to deal with um, your own emotions, learning how to relate with other people. So teaching kids those skills 
um, through, you know, clearly defining, you know, what that looks like in day-to-day life, not just, you know, hey, you need to be good at managing your emotions, but here are behaviors and strategies that I want to see you do. Now, when they do that, uh, we need to recognize it and we need to reinforce it. And so the other part of what we're doing is uh, using the mechanics, the cultures of games to make that super motivating for students. So, you know, students do those things, they earn points, they level up a character, they're working on teams. And so we're we're giving teachers the tools to help students, help them teach students how to be, um, you know, be- better, more balanced learners, while at the same time simplifying cost of management for them and making it motivating for, for kids. So when we think about, you know, going back to school uh, post-pandemic, you know, we're seeing behavior incidents all through America skyrocket, you know, 300% increase, you know, of behavioral uh, incidents, um, you know, now versus pre-pandemic times. And, you know, this is a massive crisis. It's really hard for teachers to manage it. It's hard for other students to, you know, be in and around in context where there's a lot of, of behavioral problems. And it's hard for the kids that are that are having these these behavioral challenges. You know, the kids. Uh, you know, our belief is that kids want to uh, behave in in ways that are pro-social. They just don't know how, um, and they, you know, certainly, unfortunately, through throughout the pandemic, you know, developed you know challenges in that regard a lot of kids were left to themselves with you know uh, a lot of time on their hands and not a lot of guidance and so it's our job as, as, as educators to say hey you know where are you at how can i create a school experience that is going to help you thrive is going to recognize you where you're at and teach you the skills so that you can then become a better person and the academics will follow you know i think we're um, you know, very focused on learning loss and making up for lost time. Um, but the truth is, is that there's, there's been a learning loss in terms of, you know, kids learning to be, you know, better human beings in society as well. And, you know, we need to address that issue. And, you know, and going back to you know, what my colleague here was saying about, you know, the parents' role in that, I think that's what parents want too. They want schools to be an environment where their kids learn to, you know, navigate society and, you know, navigate themselves. And so it's our job to teach them that and it's our job to do that in a way that is um, equitable uh, to your point. And I think that's where data becomes really important, looking at our behavioral intervention data and seeing, you know, are there discrepancies, are there issues and just generate generating ideally belonging for all students. So schools need, need to be a place where every kid feels where they belong. And to do that, we need to intentionally put energy towards that because it's not going to happen on its own. That was perfect. As both of you were talking, it reminded me of a book I had to go back and reread um, by Napoleon Hill. And this one word in the book that stuck out for me and it's a simple word if you look at it on a surface level, but it's very, very complicated. And that word that he mentioned in this book was imagination. Imagination is a nation of images, but it's also connected to faith. 
because whatever you can imagine, whatever you can believe, you can achieve. Whatever your mind believes, faith will connect it. If you're connected to the hope, you'll be connected to the reality of that imagination coming into fruition. One of my favorite theorists, Edward Thorndike, he's the theorist of connectivity. Uh, the learning theory of Thorndike represents the behavior psychology of connections. Learning results from associations between stimuli and responses. Such associations or habits become strengthened or weakened by the nature and repetition of a particular pattern. If the pattern is positive, then of course it grows. But if that pattern is negative, as the propensity of dying. When a student's patterns or trends are noticed, it becomes more attainable to discover their strengths and weaknesses. Identifying the student's challenges and goal setting becomes more intentional for growth. That's what Edward Thorndike had to say. Buddy Thornton, what have you been up to currently? I know you thought I was going to forget, <laughs> but I didn't. Please tell us what you got going on currently, sir. Well, writing books, writing books, and writing more books. Uh, creating classes, doing speeches, speaking engagements, uh, just trying to be a positive social change agent uh, behaviorist, which is my passion and luckily my job. So I really can't complain about that. Uh, my books are doing well. I've got uh, two more books that should be launched out uh, pre-sell and then uh, international launch before the end of the year and uh, you know everything's good I just want to make a, a big difference in people's lives and uh, the only way I can do that is to get them to see the value and let me in absolutely Sean Young said something very very uh, aligned to my studies he talked about though he didn't use the word specifically but he talked about civic engagement I know he used the word positive youth development and those words, those terms, those actions are connected to disposition. Now, the disposition is affected by the environment or the perceptions of how young people internalize what they experience. And that mindset, whether it was internal or external, affects their pro-social behavior. Buddy Thornton, Positive Social Change Agent Pro, we call you the positive social change agent pro because you you're gifted uh with i would say unraveling the the chaos how do we bridge parental involvement gaps between families and high poverty schools to accommodate and modify how we get them more responsibly involved with their scholars' educational results. How do we do it? Why should we want to do it? That's the first question for tonight. Well, it's actually a very good question, Isaiah, and I appreciate the prompt. It's very important that we understand that parents 
are responsible for their kids. And the, the pandemic has brought that home to roost because a lot of them have co-opted a lot of their parenting responsibilities to the schools and to the teachers and to anybody else who would take them. And now that we've gone through this, you know, crucible as a global uh, humanity, we now have to realize that maybe we've had the boat turned upside down for a long time. It's time for us to understand if we are going to bridge to the parents and get them fully involved, we have to humanize them and we have to encourage them to humanize us. I always say that for you to get anybody's attention, you have to get them to see the value that you're bringing to the table. And to do that, in this case, you have to treat everybody with universal positive regard. Just like Dr. Larry Davis says, there's no standardized child, there's no standardized environment. Well, there's no standardized parent either. You know, we have to look at and recognize that there are potential disconnects throughout society. It doesn't really matter all the time about your socioeconomic status because it costs absolutely nothing for a parent to sit across the table and talk to their child about their schoolwork and to help them. But what about the actual disconnects? What happens when the parents themselves had a bad school experience? What happens when maybe they're a single parent or maybe they're overburdened and they have huge time restraints because their work doesn't accommodate helping their kids at the level they would like to? How about maybe they did have a fairly decent school environment, but they have academic deficiencies. Those can lead to sometimes contemptible uh, beliefs about the school environment and the teachers. They can also put a parent in a situation where they feel like they have to be subservient or recognize the authority of the school, and that makes them uncomfortable. We have teacher apathy toward parents because when parents don't engage, some teachers, not all teachers, but some teachers take that as an affront. And it's like, well, if the parents don't care, well, then I'm going to do, you know, what I can to get through the day. But, you know, uh, their level of care is my level of care. So that, that becomes a bi-directional disconnect. But the biggest one out of all of them, those are things that can be overcome. We cannot overcome a lack of communication channels. And right now, communication is probably the biggest problem that we face. And, of course, in a contentious environment like we have right now, uh, some parents want to control everything and some parents just want the teachers to do a better job. I mean, there's, you know, teachers can't predict exactly what's coming down the pipe. So if the teachers are just as confused in this in a lot of cases as the parents are. But we can start with a couple of very important things. Number one... <clears throat> Teachers need to try to drive, and the conversation has to be driven by the teachers because sometimes the parents do face those disconnects. So we have to recognize that if we can get them to engage, we need to reward the effort, not the outcome. Let's say a parent does not have the academic capacity to help their child with math. We should not create a situation where we look down upon that, we should embrace that and say, here is an opportunity not only for us to help the parent in a very positive way, but we can help them recognize the effort that they are putting in by engaging and being, you know, very transparent. I, I can't help my child. I'm not as good in math as I would like to be, so I can't help them. Sometimes it becomes a confidential situation, 
But nonetheless, it's a teacher's responsibility to recognize what the disconnect is and then work through the disconnect. It does add stress to the teacher's world, but at the end of the day, if they can't manage that disconnect problem, the parent is still going to be in that same situation, and the student is the one who's going to be the ultimate loser. So here's my three ways to get this done. Meet the parents where they are, emotionally, psychologically. Be real and empathize with their potential disconnects, but do not bring sympathy or ego to the table. Leave yours and insist they leave theirs outside the room. Try to find out what the parent's preferred communication style is. Make that your first and foremost responsibility. How and where and why does this parent need to be communicated in this fashion and then accept it, embrace it, and then do it? Is there a reason why we can't communicate? Even if we're uncomfortable with the way they want to communicate, we should still reach out and say, the only way this works is to have a bi-directional communication style. And if this is the only way they feel comfortable communicating, then I'm a, I can adapt. I can do this. I obviously have 20, 30 students in my classroom. I get to see 30 different communication styles. A parent has one. So it's really incumbent upon the teacher to reach out and adapt to each individual parent's communication style. Again, it puts stress on the teacher. But in this situation, it is a driver of success. The school environment, the home environment, they're not static. They're dynamic and they're evolving. There's no such thing as a one-and-done situation. That does not exist in our world. So we have to recognize that. Last, schools can offer confidential resources to parents who may have a problem speaking up. Or, you know, if a teacher hasn't communicated with parents, they need to do a, a very solid reach-out job and find out, you know what, they may have a reason why. They may be embarrassed. There may be some kind of issue that they can't overcome. But if every school was to have a shared resource book on or a file where they could help parents where they are, how they are, they can create a situation where the why of the disconnects can be put to the side. And once we put them to the side, you know what happens? School environments improve, communication improves, parents who can start helping parents who can't. The entire thing moves because, as every sailor knows, and I was in the U.S. Navy, a rising tide lifts all ships. We need to work on the communication between the teachers, the school, and the parents, especially the parents who are hesitant to, to speak up, and we fix that, and then we dig into the disconnects, and I guarantee you that's a recipe for success. Buddy Thorne, you did it again. You changed the whole direction of this podcast tonight. You did it. I want let me the panel was open. The panel was open. The question I want to ask is how and why? How is education losing credibility post COVID nineteen? Why is education losing credibility post COVID nineteen? Who wants to take that first? I can go. I mean I think that there's a I think that's a complex uh, question. Uh, I think that it's different things for different people. Um, you know, I think ultimately what we're seeing is a misfit between 
um, you know, our societal needs from school and what school is actually able to deliver right now. And, um, you know, that goes, you know, that's different things for different people in different contexts. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that we're, um, you know, seeing a lot and it's true you know i'm, I'm a i was a teacher for 10 years so I'm, I'm looking at this as well from a teacher perspective you know i think that educators are you know feeling like the system you know isn't supporting them so lots of them leaving the profession um that's leaving us with schools that are you know understaffed and unable to you know fulfill their mission at the same time, we're um, you know faced with students, communities, parents that have more needs than ever, um, you know. So, and, and also a shift in what we expect from school today as well. Um, you know, one thing that um, is you know a truism is that everything you can academically learn in school. Um, you can actually just learn online now, right? And, and we thought through the pandemic. Um, you know, the, the, the one thing that was made abundantly clear is that the math curriculum you need, you can get it online, uh, or the, you know, the reading apps or, you know, all, all the content is on Wikipedia. So what, what is the role of school today in that context? And, and what are, what are we expecting from school while well, we expect it to deliver, um, a lot more than just a Wikipedia page with information about, you know, fractions that's not math education. And so we expect schools to be a community. We expect schools to, you know, care about our child. We expect schools to um, teach and, and um, you know, uplift children and create safe communities for them to belong. And with schools being understaffed and the um, current social climate, um, you know, building communities is really, really, really challenging. And so I think that we're seeing, you know, a breakdown in the contract where schools are unable to, you know, have the resources and, and the, the, the context they need to be successful. And at the same time, the expectations are changing um, and, and creating situations where, you know, there's breakdowns in trust. You know, trust is, is, is founded on three things. Um, the first one is, you know, empathy, believing that you care about my success. So we're seeing, you know, societally, a, you know, a more prevalent perspective that, you know, schools don't care, you know, they just don't care. Um, at the same time, uh, trust is built on competency. I believe you can succeed and that you're making good decisions. Well, um, you know, that's being, you know, pretty contested as well by a lot of parents' decisions happening in schools and, you know, them getting more and more involved with that um, and vice versa. Schools are unable to make good decisions because they're, you know, although they want to, uh, are unable to for a variety of reasons. And then the third one um, is authenticity. I think that when trust starts breaking down, we stop investing authentically in relationships and start protecting ourselves. And, you know, when, when, when Buddy was talking earlier about communicating with parents, you know, I think a lot of educators are reticent to do that um, because they don't know what's on the other side of that relationship. Um, and so, so they're, they're protecting themselves uh, in essence. And so I think what we're seeing is just like, 
a lack of authenticity as well. Um, and so there's, there's a trust breakdown um, that's happening between the, the institution of school and the communities they serve and the expectations of parents and, and the people that are on the front lines, you know, in classrooms every single day. I'd like to add something to that, and you are exactly right, Sean. Uh, teachers cannot operate in an environment where they feel like they have to walk on eggshells, and there's no safety net. That's you right. know, I did pi- I did pile a whole lot on the, the teachers by the way I answered the question, and the addendum to that is the teachers should expect the parents to meet them halfway. I mean, fear is a huge demotivator in the school environment. If a teacher has absolutely no clue what's in a parent's head and they don't want to communicate with them, that barrier is going to affect the student more than anybody else, obviously. But it also is going to you know, deflect out and diffuse throughout the school environment until pretty much nobody wants to communicate with anybody. So mm-hmm. the best way we can conquer that is, number one, educate the teachers that the danger is real. Acknowledge the danger, state the fear, and then challenge the parents. You know what? I understand it's a divisive environment. I understand I have absolutely no clue what's in your mind, and I don't exactly know what you're expecting from me, but I'm not going to let my fear of the unknown between you and I stop me from attempting to understand what you need. The teacher, therefore, invites the parent in and says, look, I'm not the enemy here. I want to take care of your child and give them the best education I can within your framework and with your blessing. Help me understand what you expect so I can do the best I can. If I fail, it isn't going to be because I you know, didn't have 100% effort. We have to understand the world must reward effort and not outcome because you can do everything 100% right and still fail but no one can question your effort well I think that's interesting because when you think about any trusting relationship and I think you know the, the relationship between parents and, and, and teachers needs to be one of trust for it to be successful any trusting relationship is predicated on assuming good intentions in the other person and, you know, a lot of what you're saying, you know, if I, if I could paraphrase it or sum it up, uh, comes down to that, right? Like parents need to assume good intentions in, in teachers, you know, they're there to help your child and teachers need to assume good intentions in parents. They want their child to succeed. And, and ultimately, you know, educators and parents have the same end goal. You know, we might not agree always on, you know, the best way to get there or what's the, you know, it, every single detail of the you know journey but the destination is the same for everybody we want these kids to be well and we want them to succeed and i don't know any educator uh, or maybe there there may be some but most educators get into the profession because they want to help kids um and um and we got to keep that in mind and parents want what's best for their kids regardless of their capacity and their, you know, ability to get involved and, you know, all the different things you mentioned that they have to study. You know, I think regardless of a parent's capacity, they do want the best for their kid. Um, and we need to, you know, assume that anyways as we're interacting with them. 
You know, this conversation is so good and so great. And I want to pull on each one of you a little bit more. Let me go to Sean real quick. Sean, when I looked you up and did my research on you, I, I almost started to cry because, let me tell you, I almost started to cry. I almost started to cry because when I was a young kid, I, you know, I'm, I was the only boy. I had a sister. Well, I still have a sister, but I only grew up with a sister. Of course, we had a big family, was you know, uh, cousins and stuff like that, friends. But so I, I spent a lot of time after school by myself in the room watching mm. television. And no, 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 I I, I enjoyed myself because I was in you know Boy Scouts. I was in the Boys Club, but you know during school I was. At home, most of the time, was doing my homework before dinner, and so I came up pretty. And I would say I had a very balanced home, especially in my younger years before my parents separated. But as you were talking, as I researched you, I, it brought me back to a, a favorite uh, cartoon I used to watch. I used to watch He Man. I used to watch Rainbow mm. Bright. They had back then. I, I, the graphics weren't that good, but our imagination like added to it, I believe. And they were so like the Flintstones. I mean, these cartoons just kept your attention. And I mean, we, we loved it. I mean, we loved it. We loved it. Anyway, so long story short, when I looked you up, it reminded me of the Jetsons. And the reason why I say it reminds me of the Jetsons is because the things that you and your your organization is doing is aligned to that dream, to that imagination. I don't even know, was it Hanna-Barbera? Who, who created the Jetsons, guys? Who, who, who did it? Who, who was the person that I wrote think that, that? Yeah, I think that was Hanna-Barbera. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Same drawings as, as the Flintstones, though. You can tell it was the same artist. <laughs> it's the same artist, but the concept and, and the and the vision and the forecast and the foresight is mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. Sean Young, how are you and your team continuing to assist schools and districts post-COVID-19? And why do so many educational institutions today want to listen to what you have to say as it relates to classroom management, as it relates to the digital classroom? That's my question for you, sir. That's a, thanks for the prompt. I appreciate it. And, you know, I think we're, we're at a moment in time where, um, you know, student behavior, classroom management, is not something we can take for granted anymore. Um, we have, for, for a variety of reasons, the first one is, you know, there's a behavioral crisis uh, post-pandemic. The second one, you talked about it at the, at the top, there's huge inequity um, in, in how we intervene with students uh, based off of, you know, their, their ethnicity, but also their gender, also whether they're on, you know, um, special ed plans, et cetera. So the, there, the, we, there's a reckoning in terms of, of uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and, and just straight up equality that's at the foundation of, you know, our values um, when it comes to, to student behavior. Now, 
there's also a lot of teacher turnover. So one of the biggest challenges for any teacher is classroom management and behavior. And unfortunately, a lot of the people that are in classrooms today and haven't been doing that job for a long time. And so they're, they're faced with a huge crisis. And at the same time, um, you know, are ill-equipped to deal with it. Um, and so that's where we come in. Classcraft really has a uh, reinforcement first, positive reinforcement approach. So saying, hey, here's what I want to see you do to be a better student. And if you do those things, I will see you and I will recognize you. And you know what? I, it goes to your parents. We have, a, you know, going back to the connection with the home where students do these great things and, and they're recognized in school. You know, the teachers, the parents get notified and they can give points at home as well. So they're also a part of it. They're not just passively, you know, witnessing their child's behavior. They're actually involved. And so at home, they can give points for, you know, tours and, you know, completing homework, whatever parents want to give points for. There's a limit per day so that it stays fair because some parents won't or can't get involved. Um, and, um, but, but, but what we're doing is really saying, let's take the time to define for kids what it means to be a successful good student. And let's see them when they do that, all kids, and let's use the data to hold ourselves accountable. But at the same time, let's make it super meaningful for kids. A kid, you know, they, we need to, you know, my, my, my mission as an educator has, is and has always been to make school relevant and meaningful for young people. They have to be there. Um, that's, you know, a, a given school is mandatory. Um, that doesn't mean that we should not respect the fact that they're giving up their time to be there. You know, when you look at a child spending hours and hours and hours every single day for years and years and years in a school, it's our job as educators and, and as the people who you know, want to nurture them and support them to respect that time commitment. And so we need to make school meaningful and we need to do that in a way that is culturally relevant for them. And, you know, in 2022, the dominant uh, cultural medium for kids, unfortunately, is not cartoons anymore. It's gaming. Um, and and that's okay. You know, gaming, for, for better or for worse, is where kids are spending the most amount of their time. And as, as a school system, what we can say is, say, hey, there's some things that are really fantastically interesting about how games are designed. They're, they're designed to... Uh, want to to make the player want to engage, right? They foster intrinsic motivation, desire to partake. It's something that inherently doesn't really have meaning. Like, what's the point of playing Tetris? There's no point. You just, you know, play, you progress, you get a better score, and you rinse and repeat and try again. Super repetitive. However, because there's points, because there's levels, because there's these mechanisms that fulfill fundamental human needs that we have, in this case, the desire for competency, we're super engaged and motivated. And so what we need to be doing is redesigning school, and that's what Classcraft does, to, you know, speak culturally to all these kids because there's, you know, there is one culture in, in America for young people and it's video games and use what's useful and smart about it and apply it to how we're designing experiences. Let's create moments where students can win. Let's create meaningful teams that exist like in video games or like in, 
you know, a football team. Let's make it so that your behavior impacts the other people on your team so that you're held accountable to one another. Let's create community through game-based approaches. These are all things that we're doing. And I think that our, you know, not only are we doing really effective behavior intervention, giving districts and schools the tools to do that, um, but we're also doing it in a way that gives them power to have intervention and bring parents into the mix and um, and really collaborate with communities and with the child in terms of you know, helping them be better people. Sean, what you gave us was a survival guide. I want to open up the panel, but before I there do... There you go. <laughs> no, I want to open up the panel. Before, but before I do, I want to ask you another question. Okay. When you come back, when you come back to the podcast. Uh, Sure, absolutely. (laughs) I'm good. Just let me know. (laughs) Okay. Wow. Listen, when you were talking and when Buddy was talking and I heard the word, I don't know who it came from, but I heard the word or the phrase, the, the role of the school has changed. It needs to be redesigned. And as I was hearing that, I was coming up with some stuff. I'm like, you know what? I can't put it together, but I know someone that can. If these digital platforms could come up with some type of Facebook, some type of Instagram, some type of Snapchat. I know they're working on it now. Uh, You know, you got Class Dojo out there, but eh, that's good. But something more... Uh, geared toward that gaming something more geared to what is going on today right and helping us redesign and bringing in the community I mean Facebook you go on Facebook yeah I know it's an older crowd but if and I know these algorithms are going out because we're in about 70 different countries so what I'm saying is actually going out uh, (laughs) into cyberspace but if we could grab a hold to it first and form some type of platform and, and put in motion a, a new type of integrated educational system that's user-friendly, that you don't have to have a PhD to operate. You could be in the third grade, you could be in kindergarten and still understand how to use it. It could be the kid level, or it could be the adult plus or whatever. But I want to open up the panel. <laughs> the panel is open. What's your takeaway so far about tonight's very, very good conversation? Uh, let me uh, let me interject one thing right quick, and then I'll give you an answer to that. But you're talking about changing the paradigm, and here's the paradigm problem. The kids face a psychological barrier, especially the kids who are coming from the uh, less secure environments, no matter how you want to define that. It doesn't matter how you define it. They don't believe that they're getting a fair shake. There's no equity in the system. And that's because the entire system is predicated on outcomes. Here's the biggest way to pivot that. I've talked about it before, but I'm going to emphasize a new shift in it when you're a professional and you go into any organization I don't care where it is if you don't do a pre-assessment and then you don't do your training and then you don't do a post-assessment you don't get the analytics to understand what difference you made in that organization students are no different than that 
we already have enough pre-assessment information about every student possible. I mean, that's the schools do that probably as good as any one I know. They understand where kids are right now at this moment. The problem is the measuring system. They're measuring for maximal outcome and optimal results. They're not measuring the distance traveled, the competency gained. When I see a child walk in the door and then another child walk in the door and one came from 20s and 30s and they achieved 60s and 70s and the other one was making 70s and just barely did enough effort to reach the 80s, who am I going to recognize as the more effort-worthy student, the one who traveled the longest distance? Out in society as an employer, when I'm looking at two candidates, <clears throat> I don't look at the one with the highest score. I look at the one who did the most to get the score they have right now. If they both have the competency to do the job, I can work with either one of them, but I would rather work with the one who showed that they're willing to put out the effort and put out anything they need to to achieve. So I'm always going to reward the one who traveled the farthest distance. Schools have never done that. This is not the way we have it set up. We need to change the shift from if you're not creating an optimal outcome you're a failing student too where did you start what was your starting point what were your barriers and how did you get there not to say that we want to turn all of them into victimology uh, laden kids who think wow if i can present this really negative picture and then i can just do this work i'm going to look like a, a gold mine no we don't want to create that mentality but we need to do a, an honest and fair pre-assessment and then look at a child and see how far we can get them to go. Because that, at the end of the day, measures not only their success, but it measures our success. And that, you know, I just wanted to throw it out there because my takeaway is that Sean and I both, we come at the problem from totally different positions. He's a teacher and I'm a parent coach and a social agent. I, I work external to the schools, but at the end of the day, we are seeking the exact same outcome. We want to see this huge parade of children who are walking proudly into adulthood as functional as they can possibly be. <clears throat> so we need to remove the psychological barrier as well as the physical and mental issues that everyone has and get everyone to realize that this is an effort-driven world. It's a relationship-driven world. Honor these kids for how hard they work, not whether they received an A or not. That, that's my argument. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 uh, there's a lot of merit to that. I mean, and that's a lot of what we're doing with Classcraft is, you know, recognizing behavior. Um, you know, I think um, the problem, in, in, you know, is, is that we've um, conflated assessment with recognition. Um, you know, I think it's okay to assess a child's, you know, math skills or, or whatever. Uh, that's important information we need to have. What's problematic is that we're, um, you know, recognizing and ranking and, you know, giving value to a child based off of, you know, grades. Um, and that's problematic. Grades are meant to you know, inform a parent uh, or a child about their, their you know, where they're at on, on specific things. 
But more importantly, they're made to inform educators about, you know, gaps in their own teaching, right? Think about it. If all of my students are, you know, struggling, you know, to, to pass a certain content and they have bad grades, what does that say about my own teaching? And so we should be using that data, ultimately assessment data, data for us to develop new strategies to, you know, help specific children develop and also develop strategies for ourselves to improve our own teaching strategies. And so, um, you know, I think that there's a, there's a definitely a disconnect between what assessment is meant for, which is, you know, creating new interventions and strategies to get a kid to learn and what we're using it for, which is, you know, a, positioning societally and wrecking, you know, and, and, and a student's worth and self-worth based off of these assessments. Um, and so I think, you know, assessment is okay. We just need to be rethinking about what it's for and why are we using it? It shouldn't be used as a way to co coerce and control students. It should be used as a way to get information about their learning and in doing so adapt our strategies to them. Um, but, you know, I, I agree with you, buddy. We, we, and that's our entire company here at Classcraft is about, um, you know, telling kids, hey, here's how you should, you know, show up to be successful. And when they do it, recognize the kid on a whole other system than grades, right? Their character in Classcraft, the leveling off the points that they earn. It's all about giving them real feedback about tangible things that they're doing every single day so that they can get better um, on things that they control. You know, they control, kids control how they show up. They control the behaviors they have in a classroom. They control the decisions they make day to day in the physical space of the classroom. And we need to recognize them for it and we need to empower them to, you know, make even better decisions. No child wants to be unsuccessful. You can forget about it. That's true. They don't. So let me open up the panel and then we are out of here. <laughs> Listen, honest, thank you so much for listening tonight. But the last question, I think it's going to be a good one. I think the re I know the responses are going to be wonderful. And so the question is, what questions are teachers not asking their students during classroom instruction? I think the biggest question that's not being asked is, are you aware of where you are? You know, children, as they develop, uh, acquire abstract thinking somewhere around the age of 12 or 13. And from that point through their entire teen years and into their young adult years, they really only have two things they're doing. They're searching for an identity and they want to know where they fit in the pecking order and in society. That's really all they're looking for. If you take every paradigm that you can measure, it all boils down to those two things. You know, who am I? And where do I fit? And when you boil it down to that, the biggest thing that a teacher fails to ask is how self-aware is that child about where they are within those two paradigms? Are they overthinking the socialization and they're losing their self-identity because they want to fit in with other people? Or, you know, there's, there's got to be a balancing point where the student understands who they are and where they're going and teachers don't ask that question enough. They think that they are doing the assessments and then they're pigeonholing these kids, 
And the kids, because they don't get asked a question and they don't get to self-define, they just accept the assessment and say, well, that's, that's who I am. I'm a failure. Or I'm a success. And they get this alter ego that does not fit their true persona. In reality, there are no successes and no failures without self-awareness. So we need to build in the, the question. Do you know where you are? Do you know where you're going? And what can I do to help you get there? And I would uh, maybe piggyback on the last one. I would, my, my answer would have, those are great answers, buddy. My answer would have been, how am I doing? You know, teachers need feedback on how they're doing as a teacher and they are not asking for it sufficiently in my opinion um you know one of the things uh, i'm working with a with a college uh here in canada and one of the things we're looking at is uh you know getting real-time ongoing surveys about teaching at the end of every single class um you know what did you learn how am i doing i think we're um not listening sufficiently to students and um you know and i think that if we were to ask them uh, we could quickly become much better educators and you know have much stronger relationships with them impact of educational leadership podcast facebook